1: I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Paul Shapiro has spent the bulk of his career fighting on behalf of animals. As the Vice President of Policy Engagement for the Humane Society of the United States, Paul works to promote legislation and policies that benefits the thousands of animals suffering in the entertainment or food industry. Before he headed up policy engagement, Paul's focus was on farm animals, and few people understand the abuse and cruelty these animals experience on factory farms better than he does. While fighting to get bigger cages and more humane treatment for animals caught in the food system has been a big part of Paul's mission, he has become increasingly interested in the world of clean meat. That is, meat that is grown in a lab without causing harm to animals. I recently caught up with Paul and learned more about his new book on the subject, entitled Clean Meat, and the advancements that he's observed in the industry. Although the technology is relatively new, there has been an incredible amount of innovation and growth in the past few years. Paul has literally devoted his life to fighting for animals on a legislative level, but he believes that this new technology has the power to provide a consumer-based solution to the many issues associated with factory farming. If you're interested in learning more about the advancements in the world of clean meat and a lot more, listen into to this engaging conversation. Paul Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
0: No, it's my honor to be here, my
1: friend. Paul, you've been um, an animal advocate now for over 20 years. You've been uh, fighting the good fight. How would you describe your mission and your life's focus for the last 20 years?
0: Huh. Um, it definitely doesn't feel that long, but I think the facts do confirm what you're saying. Um, I think, Neil, my mission is to create a kinder world with vastly less suffering than is on it right now. Uh, We are causing an enormity of suffering, both to other animals, to ourselves. And a lot of that suffering can be traced to the factory farming of animals. And so my career has been spent trying to combat that system of intensive animal agriculture that sentences billions upon billions of animals to lives that, frankly, aren't really worth living and that are also causing enormous problems for our public health, for wildlife too, and really more. Your work so far has been very focused on advocacy
1: and, um, you know, you've been Uh, At the HSUS now for over 10 years, is that correct? 13 years. 13 years, great. And you've uh, worked on a number of campaigns on that front, but um, increasingly we're starting to see that innovation in the food industry is bringing about a new kind of solution that perhaps uh, wasn't explored before, or maybe it was too early for it to be explored.
0: My point is what do you think is most
1: effective?
0: Ah, no, what a a tough question. So I think there's lots of ways to get at the problem and animal advocacy is a good option. Whether it's an optimal option, I think is going to remain to be seen, but I think it's good and I think it's necessary for a variety of reasons. But I mean, look, the facts are very stark. The reason why whales were ultimately liberated from whaling ships is not because of humane sentiment but rather because of an innovation of kerosene which freed us from our dependence on whale oil the reason why horses are no longer laboring in our streets isn't because of humane sentiment it's because henry ford invented a better superior option and so if you look at those as two examples and you wonder well what might free farm animals from factory farms will it be humane sentiment Or is it going to be technological innovations, or maybe some combination thereof? And so I think advocacy groups like the Humane Society of the U.S. and others can play a role in both. So let me give you an example. We have been campaigning through ballot measures, other legislative campaigns, corporate campaigns, and more to improve the lot of farm animals to help uh, reduce the suffering of these animals while they're on factory farms. At the same time, we're also campaigning to help the biggest food sellers use less meat, doing meatless Mondays within school districts or hospital chains or corporate cafeterias and so on. But we're also investors. Uh, We have done two rounds of investment, for example, with Beyond Meat. We're the lead investor in Miyoko's Kitchen. We are invested in Veggie Grill and in other companies that help uh, create technological solutions to the problem of animal exploitation. So we have our feet really in both worlds right now. But I do think there's more room for the advocacy community, including HSUS, to be doing more on that. And when did the investment arm of uh,
1: HSUS, how did that come about? You're a a 5013C. How's that work with your donors? Do they look upon that favorably? Um,
0: Tell me more about how that even started and uh, what the work is right now. Well, most large nonprofits have investments. They're usually in the stock market. They put some of their money in a portfolio because essentially um, it's just good governance. Like the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance requires uh, for their seal of approval for nonprofits to have some of their budget, not their budget, rather some of their money in store in the case of a rainy day or a rainy year as the case may be. And most of our investments are in the stock market. But Several years ago, we began doing mission-related business venture uh, investment as well in the companies that I just named. And so we have a um, committee on our board of directors that decides what investments to make. And admittedly, it's a small part of our total investment portfolio and may become bigger in the upcoming years. We'll see. But I think there's a real case to be made for nonprofits rather than simply investing in the stock market, which, you know, is generally considered a safe thing to do to use some of that investment money to invest in, in companies that will advance their mission, which is riskier to do, but you have the benefit of doing things that will help your mission as well, which regular stock market investments don't do. Right. And so
1: this is not a separate um, entity outside the HSUS that is part of um, your overall work that's being done. That's right. That's interesting. So... Uh- Given that, do we
0: need new animal advocacy groups? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I generally think that many animal advocacy groups are doing really great work. However, there are a lot of groups. And if you look at the success of other movements, they generally have one or two really big groups that are very, very influential. So you look at like the NRA as an example. On Capitol Hill, the gun lobby is essentially the NRA. They don't have hundreds of little groups that are all on Capitol Hill doing things. And I'm not suggesting that there ought to be just one hegemonic animal group, but Mm -hmm. I do think that uh, to the extent that animal groups can be bigger and stronger rather than more diffuse and smaller throughout, animals would be better off. Do you think we need to fight for campaigns for
1: improved welfare of animals, Um, given that there are maybe other more effective ways to get people to consume less animals um, or choose alternatives? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the, um, you know, if you had to look ahead, say, five, 10 years and see where campaigns like the fight um, to get rid of battery cages are going to be, what's your view on that? And should new groups be even focused on that? I know HSUS has been sure and leading it, but, um, you know, where does that kind of fit into what's going on right now?
0: Yeah, I think one of the most promising things that groups like HSUS are doing right now is institutional meat reduction. So it's very cost effective to have people who work with the directors of dining and other major food service purchasers to help them use less meat. The reason why we're getting rid of battery cages is not because we persuaded millions of individuals to change the type of eggs they're buying. Rather, we got the biggest buyers of eggs, the fast food companies, the uh, restaurants, grocery chains, and so on, to implement policies that say if you want to sell us eggs, they're going to have to be cage-free. And the same is now happening, whereas the animal movement in the past has been largely focused on persuading millions of individuals to change their diets. Now, the animal movement is increasingly focused on getting policies that slash demand for meat in one fell swoop. I'll give you just one example. Mm -hmm. In Los Angeles, the school district, which serves about 700,000 meals every single day because of working with HSUS's Christy Middleton, the managing director at HSUS, um, they now have meatless Mondays. Every Monday, 700,000 fewer meat-based meals are served. Imagine how many individuals you'd have to try to persuade to to get that type of meat reduction. And there's lots of examples of those types of policies in place. So those are very cost-effective. They do a lot to help animals. At the same time, I also think to your broader question about the welfare improvements for animals, farm animals have virtually no legal protection whatsoever. And that's not because people don't want them to. There's a big disparity between what people want for farm animals and what they actually get. Now, there may be greater reforms that many people would like to see for them, but at a bare minimum, most Americans think that battery cages are deplorable and shouldn't Mm -hmm. be allowed. And we shouldn't allow that gap to exist, that farm animals should have at least as much legal protection as Americans want them to have. And in the case of battery cages for laying hens or gestation crates for pigs, bringing the legal standards for farm animals up to where public sentiment is today will alleviate a lot of misery for the animals who are doomed to suffer in these factory farms. We know that these birds, they're not getting out. Mm-hmm. They are going to be on these factory farms for years to come. And to the extent that we can reduce the misery that they endure, I think it's a good idea for at least part of the animal movement to focus on that.
1: Right. And so if you sort of, um, you know, you take a bird's eye view of what's going on right now with uh, the factory farming system, and if you look at some of the... Progress we've started to see in the food industry in the last five or maybe 10 years. You can even look further back if you look at the origins of the natural food industry. I think it's led to where we are now. Uh, from your standpoint at the HSUS, you've been involved in these range of campaigns and now investing in companies and, and doing more. And of course, we're going to get into your new book uh, that talks about um, some real cutting edge innovations that could transform um, our food system. If you look back at the work that has been done, say, in the last 13 years since you've been at the HSUS, have you been able to get a sense of where you're making the most progress? And how would you define the progress?
0: Yeah, I think there are a few areas where there's been clear, tangible progress. So at the beginning of that campaign... About 1% of the egg industry was not in cages. Now, 14% is not. And that's tens of millions of fewer birds who are locked inside of battery cages as a result. Hundreds of thousands of fewer breeding pigs are now in gestation crates. Hundreds of thousands of fewer calves are now in veal crates. That's all within the US alone. The problem is that there are still huge numbers of animals who are suffering in those crates and cages. And internationally, You have everything going in the wrong direction for the most part, increased demand for meat and for factory farming. So there is clear progress that has been made in some places like the United States. Um, But at the same time, uh, to be totally frank, it's not nearly enough. It needs to happen faster and it needs to happen in an even more transformational way.
1: Yeah, because, you know, if you look, there have been certain victories from a campaign standpoint, certain specific bans have been put in place in some states, But um, if you look at the overall meat consumption and production in the U.S., it hasn't, you know, factory farms still dominate, what, 99%, I think, of.
0: Yeah. So meat consumption did fall for several years in the United States, really between 2008 and 2014 on a per capita basis. In fact, uh, in that time period, uh, about half a billion fewer animals per year were being raised and killed for food. But since then, it has gone back up mm-hmm. and meat consumption is on the rise in the United States right now, which is yet another reason that I think affirms the general point that you're implying, Neil, which is that we need effective strategies that are going to more rapidly and efficiently get mm-hmm. at this problem. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, this is going to
1: segue into our discussion around technology, Um but, you know, I imagine at uh, HSUS HQ, you've got some sort of a master strategy slide <laughs> somewhere. <or laughs> it's a in a secret
0: bunker we've got in the basement. <laughs> yeah. that, that
1: That is looking at this massive problem of uh, factory farming and thinking of where you can allocate... And feel free to interrupt me and continue the Uh the the sentence uh, and and reflecting really what happens over there. But I look at it as you know, there's this massive problem. HSUS has now got the resources, amongst some other nonprofit groups, um, to be able to tackle this problem at every front of this. Almost like a almost it's a war. (laughs) Um, It's meat reduction. To some extent, you're even partnering with the industry, Um, innovation, education. All of it is sort of needed. You can't say one thing is going to fix it, but maybe there's going to be some things that are going to be way more effective much quicker
0: that's right i I think if we all knew what or if any of us knew what the one thing was we'd all be doing that Mm -hmm. um and i do think it's going to require a variety of tactics but i don't think that all tactics are equal i think some are far more effective than others and so it's kind of like you know you look at the problem of fossil fuels like that is such a serious problem that you don't want just one alternative, let's say wind. You want wind, you want solar, you want geothermal, you want a whole variety of them. The problem of factory farming is similarly similarly, so serious that you really need a variety of strategies to provide alternatives to it. Plant-based meats, I think, are one queer, queerly promising alternative. Uh, simply eating more whole plant-based foods is another. And I think these clean meat companies are providing what will become another alternative to factory farming as well. So... You've done the segue. You've taken me to clean meat, so
1: I'm <laughs> going to dive deeper into that. Your new book is called Clean Meat. Um, I
0: believe this is your first book. It's my first published book, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have another one that I intend to publish later that I've already written, but this is the first one I'm publishing. All right, congratulations,
1: firstly. Um, Thank you. I read the book, and um, I highly it. recommend it. It's a, it's it's very interesting, and I think it, it puts forth a very um, almost... As it happens, historical record of what's going on right now uh, in um, in the race to produce uh, a viable form of meat that does not involve slaughtering animals, right. which is been something you've, if anyone who's into science fiction, that's me, um, and, and me, uh, you've re- I've read you've always read about that and thought one day that'll happen. We seem to be getting closer and closer to it, and your book dives deep into the people behind. Um, that work and um, the very real possibility that we will see something in grocery stores in a matter of years now. So first and foremost,
0: why did you write this book? Well, no, like you, I am a very self-respecting sci-fi geek and um, I have been Really in love with the idea of producing real meat that doesn't involve raising and slaughtering animals for a long time. I mean, after all, this is how they ate meat on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was NASA, in fact, who funded the first research into producing queen meat back around the turn of the century. NASA recognized that, you know, if we're going to actually have long term space travel by humans, they're not going to be carrying Noah's Ark in tow. (laughs) You know, if they want meat, they're going to have to grow it. So NASA funded this research to grow real meat, and they did it. They grew real fish meat outside of a fish's body, and they fried it up, and the FDA didn't allow them to eat it, but that was the first experiment that actually produced real, clean meat. And... For me, like I said, the problem of factory farming is so severe that if we can produce real meat from animal cells as opposed to animal slaughter, the benefits are enormous. Certainly, there's a benefit to animal welfare, which is obvious. Uh, But in addition, there's huge benefits to climate change because these products require so many fewer resources to produce. There's big food safety benefits because this meat is literally cleaner. Um, We can talk about that later, too. Um, and there's food security benefits because as nations like India and China and Brazil enter more into the developed world and they keep growing both in their population and in their per capita demand for meat, we ha- you know if they were going to have that meat to eat, we don't have access to another planet's resources to grow it on. Uh, we just don't have a bigger planet than the one that we have right now. And so if they want meat this is a promising way to provide it. And I think it's going to be promising for the United States too. So it's very rare that you have one technology that can do so much good. And I think that it's certainly not a panacea, but it does provide enormous promise to solve many of the most pressing sustainability problems that we face as a species right now. Yeah. When did you first hear about it? And,
1: um, not just, not just Star Trek, but sure about it actually <laughs> happening. Yeah. Um. And did did you kind of know you wanted to do more research and then eventually lead to a book? How did the book come about, really?
0: Um. The first time I had ever heard of it was in the early two thousands when uh, Jason Matheny, who is a character in the book, mm-hmm. uh, he started this organization called New Harvest where he basically wanted to popularize this concept and he learned about it from reading about the NASA research and, into growing fish meat. And he told me about it, and I was so intrigued, and I kept following it for years. And I was really a passionate cheerleader. Anytime I got asked about it, mm-hmm. I would sing the praises of this type of imaginary technology, basically. Mm-hmm. Um but it wasn't until a couple years ago that you started having companies starting to get formed. Back in 2013, you had Mark Post in the Netherlands grow the first real queen burger. But even then, it was just an academic exercise. He didn't have a company. It wasn't until the end of 2015 that uh, Dr. Uma Valetti, who's now the CEO of Memphis Meats, formed the first company to decide to try to commercialize this product. And that was really interesting to me. I thought um, this is the beginning of this new nascent field of cellular agriculture. And I thought these people may end up doing more good for animals in the world than what people like I've been doing with my life. Mm -hmm. Um, It's totally possible that these pioneers who are doing this um, are going to have a really big impact. And so I wanted to tell their story. You know, the book, it's not about me. The book is about them. It's yeah. about the stories of the people who are creating this new field of growing real animal products without animals. Yeah. And why, and who do you think
1: should read a book like this? Do, why do you think this is, uh, I mean, I enjoyed reading it because I'm obsessed with this probably mm-hmm. not as much as you, close to as much as you, but, um, yeah. Who, who's the
0: intended, uh, end
1: reader for this book?
0: I think anyone who's interested in books about business or about mm-hmm. sustainability or science and technology for a popular layperson's audience would be interested in this. Um, the book looks at the creation of these startups, the investors behind them, the motivations, their pitchers to big VCs and so on. And so the book certainly makes the case for these products and the promise they hold, but it really is more the story of the creation of a new industry. Mm-hmm. I, I
1: think some of the the behind-the-scenes stories that you've you've uh, peppered the book with is, is just what makes it really interesting because, you know, it's still very early on, and we don't know where this is all going to end up, but you're capturing um, some details that will probably get lost in history. <laughs> so I think from that standpoint, at least from me being a, a geek about all things uh, uh clean meat and plant-based meat, this was uh, definitely a a very insightful look into what, what has been happening in the last few years, some of which I've heard of, but some of which I had no idea about.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Thank you, Neil. I mean, there are a lot of stories in the book. Like, I'll, I'll tease with one of them. Um, and you can read more about the book at cleanmeat.com. But one of the stories basically is you know, you look at Mark Post, this is the guy who grew the first ever clean hamburgers. And it cost uh, nearly a million dollars to grow two of them. And Sergey Brin, the co founder of Google, funded him to do this. So, the day before he's getting ready to travel from the Netherlands to London to debut these to the world and create this media firestorm, he's got these two burgers in his office at his university. And he decides, oh, I got to go home. So rather than doing what I would do, which is, you know, hire like an armored van to (laughs) transport me with these burgers, Mark is such an environmentalist that he did what he does every day. He got on his bike and put a cardboard box with these nearly quarter, or excuse me, with these uh, nearly a million dollars worth of queen meat in the box and just rides his bike 20 minutes through the Netherlands streets. home. And it was such a hot day too. It was really a, a risk. Uh, But he got home, he stashed them in his refrigerator and hoped his kids wouldn't, you know, molest the box at night. (laughs) And then in the morning, he... he I think he put a not for human use label on it. He did, yeah, (laughs) good memory, yeah. So, which is actually a legal requirement for transporting anything out of the lab in the Netherlands. And so he transported them with him. He he could have flown to London, but he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to get these on the plane because it was uh, lab material. And so Mm -hmm. he took the train from the Netherlands to London and uh, everything worked out. He thought that he might even just stash them in the minibar, like in the in the hotel room. But he was like, ah, I thought there'd be too many little vodka bottles to take out of the out of the thing, and so he ordered a, He had them put a, an empty refrigerator in his room but there's a lot of stories like that in the book where uh, you see the behind the scenes of what happens these major historic events mm-hmm. and um these are just humans doing them. <laughs> you know as yeah. with all history it's just people
1: yeah and mark is mark is a very I, I met him um i think it was earlier this summer um he's what i like about him is he's um He's so focused on he's driven by sustainability, like you pointed out. He he rode his bike to work even that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and he eats meat. And I think right. that you in a weird way
0: you need that kind of perspective is he loves meat. And yeah. he,
1: he is obsessed with this
0: idea that he can he can create it. Yeah, Mark is pretty interesting because he I mean his goal is to end the raising of animals for meat. He's mm-hmm. very blunt on that point, yet he eats meat pretty much every day of his life. And that's unlike many of the other founders of the companies, and Mark has since gone on to found a company in 2016 called Mosa Meat. But uh, many of the other founders, people like Uma are, are don't fit into that category. Mm-hmm. They're people who uh, have been a part of the vegetarian and vegan community for a long time We thought this is a promising way to help get at this problem. So they left what they were doing and started these companies instead.
1: Yeah, no, but I'm um, having met many of the folks that are in the book, um, and it's interesting to see the the challenges that they've had to sort of overcome to even take this first step. Uma being a successful cardiologist and having to make this pivot and do this, you
0: know, seemingly crazy thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he's foregoing the most lucrative decade of his career as a cardiologist. He's in his 40s now. He could have really made a, a fortune um, practicing medicine. Um, but he decided that he thought this was too important not to do. And yeah. he looked around and nobody else was doing it. And now Memphis Meats has already brought in $22 million in venture capital funding, including from Cargill, the agriculture giant, which sees clean meat as a part of the future of protein for humanity. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a lot of questions on clean meat and, um, you
1: know, how this is going to go from. The R and D phase into widespread adoption, because that obviously will have to happen for us to really make a difference. But before I get to that, um, you obviously went into researching and writing this book, already being a believer and a proponent of this, um, right? Probably before you even tasted any of it yourself. That's right. Um, or met most of these people. What sort of surprised you during the journey of? Uh, researching the technology, the, the science behind it, the people, what were some of the, the kind of things that blew you away and made you even more optimistic about this as a potential solution to all our food problems?
0: So I was familiar, but not nearly as much as so now before I started researching it. But I thought originally that it was just basically taking animal cells and growing meat and other animal products from it. When in reality, there's a whole host of companies that are not even using any initial animal cells at all. So take, for example, Geltor, hmm. a company in the Bay Area that produ- that is growing its own gelatin. This is actually the first of these companies to have commercialized anything. Yeah. Uh, The other companies are all still in R&D phase. Geltor is actually selling its gelatin. And uh, they are not using any animal starter cells. They are ditched animal cells and are growing from the molecule up real gelatin, real collagen. And there are other companies that are doing the same to produce real leather, real egg whites, real milk all without any animal starter cells at all. And they're producing these products that are essentially identical to the products that are on the market today, except they never involved even the trace of an animal in the first place.
1: but well, Because they have a different kind of, um, what, what is the base technology? Can you describe yeah. it in a way of someone like me can understand?
0: <laughs> yes. So in the way that somebody who's very smart and informed, yeah, sure. <laughs> oh. So basically, um, imagine that you have brewer's yeast Mm -hmm. and you feed it sugar and it produces alcohol or baker's yeast and you feed it sugar and it produces co2 to make bread rise Uh, they are taking designer yeasts and feeding them so that they are producing for example milk proteins literally the same proteins that are in cow's milk like casein and whey and they're producing those milk proteins from scratch so there's a company called perfect day that is doing Mm -hmm. just this and i've eaten their yogurt and basically, um, when you produce the half dozen key proteins that are in milk and you add water and some minerals and some sugar to it, you've got cow's milk, even though it was never from a living cow at all. Uh, there's a company called Clara foods, uh, Arturo Elizondo is the CEO and, you know, Arturo and his team are making egg whites in the same way. They're getting yeast to produce egg proteins and then adding water. And so they're essentially getting egg whites without chickens. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the bigger surprises for me. Wow. That's interesting. I mean,
1: I I've um, definitely learned a lot more than I knew than before I started reading a book. So again, if I haven't said it enough, I highly recommend the book. Um, I think it, it is not only a very interesting, entertaining read, but, um, uh, I felt like a lot smarter at the end of it. Which oh, very is cool. What a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, One of the things, I I mean, I'm a tech enthusiast in general, even, I mean, when it comes to food and technology, because I think technology is neutral, can be used to do good or bad. Yes. Um, And unfortunately, in the food space, we've used it to do more bad than good in the past, and perhaps we can change that in the future. I think we have no option but to change it in the future. So... I, when I talk about my enthusiasm for technology as a solution to um, the problems facing the planet um, and our unsustainable food system, some people tend to say, in response to that, saying, why can't people just eat real food? Why is it that we, we need to do this? Um, I, I'm sure you have thoughts on that, but my real question is, who do you think is going to be the ideal end um, consumer of these products?
0: Well, the surveys so far are pretty clear that the more meat you eat now, the more likely you are open to eating clean meat. The less meat you eat now, like if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or a meat reducer, the less likely you have an interest in eating clean meat. So these products are not intended for vegans. They're intended for people who eat meat and would be open to eating these. At the same time, I do think that a lot of people who profess that they want some certain type of diet, let's say like what you were saying, so-called real food, Uh, That's not really the diet that most people eat today. I mean, you know, very few of us are that concerned about seedless watermelons despite the fact that they're totally unnatural and we prefer them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very few of us are concerned about eating apples when in reality apples are not native to here and the original apples are so pathetic you wouldn't even want to eat them or bananas or so many other foods that fit into that category. Um, even you take cheese today, nearly all hard cheese that is consumed in the United States is produced with rennet that is made from genetically engineered bacteria or yeast to produce Mm -hmm. this rennet. And, you know, rennet makes cheese, makes milk curdle. It's, um used to be produced from calf intestinal linings. And then starting in the nineties, we now have uh, synthetic biology produced rennet. That's in virtually every bite of hard cheese that people are eating today. And nobody's sitting around worried about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the same is so with this, if queen meat comes onto the market and it tastes the same is uh, as safe, if not safer, and it is cost com- cost competitive, I think there's gonna be a lot of people who are going to be down to eat it.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh- At the end of the day, most people would assume cheese is a natural, real food. Right. (laughs) And, you know, that's, I found the cheese example to be very interesting because it's a good response. And next time someone brings that up, I prefer to just eat uh, real food. I mean, at the end, world. Most of the food we eat today, even the broccoli, is not really right. what broccoli used to be. That's right. <laughs> All uh, of our foods are largely hybridized and, and, and kind of some other version of what it used to be. So
0: Yeah, virtually everything that we're eating is human-made in some form. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really very few people who are subsisting on a diet that was so-called uh, natural to humanity thousands of years ago.
1: Yeah, but you know, at the same time, I'm... Um... I can see both sides of uh, the argument because I, you know, I like to eat simple and I like to choose foods that are as um, I hate to use the word real. Cause I've been bashing it for the last five minutes, but <laughs> that is, that is as close to his natural form. Let's put it that way. Sure. Um, and you know, uh, and I think that's just a healthier way to, to eat. The The reason I bring that up is because let's assume the core because a lot of people, when they talk about plant-based food in general, they assume we're talking about a category of health food or right. natural food, because that's originally where those products were sold. Initially, the consumers that were interested in plant-based foods, whether it was tempeh or yeah. tofu. Both were, of which I love. Both of which are fine. <laughs> and were either into it because of sustainability or ethical reasons, or uh, they were health enthusiasts and wanted right. to stop eating meat or other processed foods. Um more processed foods. Perhaps the end consumer for clean meat is in fact not going to be the the health enthusiast or the natural food um, shopper, yeah, which I,
0: changes things a little bit in terms of how you bring these products to the market. Totally agreed. Uh, I mean, I myself personally, if I go to some place and they've got quinoa with tempeh, I'm psyched. (laughs) Like, that's a great meal for me. Uh, But I'm not the target audience for Mm -hmm. queen meat. Uh, More likely, somebody going to KFC is the target audience for it. And I think that those of us who go to a lot of the natural food stores or farmer's markets or whatever can Mm -hmm. sometimes live in a bubble that deludes ourselves about what food is like. And I would encourage people, just go to a mainstream supermarket, Safeway or others, and just stand there and look at what people are buying. And ask yourself, would it be better if they were buying meat that was produced much more sustainably, much more humanely with vastly fewer resources? Clearly, the answer to that is yes. And I think many of us fall into that category much more so than we might be willing to admit to ourselves as well.
1: Yeah, no, I think, and it's perhaps early, but um, in your research and conversations with uh, people who are sort of leading the way uh, on the research front so far, have they already been discussions about how to take these products to the market because leading with sustainability is all fine when you're um, trying to get investment or talking about um, how this meat is uh, better for you is all fine when you're trying to initially get some press. But when you finally are going to have to get these products in a store or in a fast food chain, the end consumer Perhaps that'll change down the line, but most of the the consumers you were talking about Don't care about all that. As long as it costs the same and it tastes the same.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it may even be the inverse. It may be that marketing with those claims would make people less likely to Mm -hmm. eat them. I mean, there's some studies showing that if you label foods vegan in mainstream supermarkets, that vastly fewer people are seeking to buy them than if you didn't label them at all, the same exact product. And so yeah, I think you know, one example that I, I would look at for this would be take for example, just mayo, the Hampton Creek product that is sold in Walmart and uh, it's in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, actually, of cafeterias across the country. The people who use that aren't buying it because it doesn't have eggs in it. They're buying it because they like the way it tastes and it's cost competitive with mm-hmm. the brands that they might have otherwise bought. And I think the same will be so for clean meat products that maybe at first when there is a price disparity, you might be marketing it on um, on these types of claims. But the goal is for it simply to displace meat In a way that are conventionally produced meat, so that you don't have people who just are focused on sustainability concerns in their purchasing practices, because as you point out, Neil, nearly nobody makes their purchasing decisions based on that.
1: Yeah, and you know those are important things that will have to be kept in mind. When you know, I'm also a geek when it comes to branding and marketing, so I'm always thinking that's this is nice, but um, how is that going to work when it's finally at that. You know what are you gonna have on your on your label and your packaging? What mm-hmm. claims are you gonna not claims as much as what are you gonna say about the story of that food? Yes, um, because those are really important
0: decisions. And you don't have too much real estate on a package to even say much. Yeah, you Um, certainly don't. Um, I I don't even think there have been focus groups yet done on this to see what would be the most appealing. Um, But as these companies get closer to commercialization, as they will within years, as you point out, that's all going to have to be done. Yeah. And speaking of getting close to
1: commercialization, who do you think is um, sort of leading the pack at the moment? Like who is... (laughs) who is going to have the first product for sale or in food service or... Yeah,
0: Uh, it's a hotly debated question. So Mm -hmm. one, as I pointed out, Geltor has already commercialized its products. So they're selling their their collagen not yet on the food market, but rather to cosmetics companies. Um, But... I think, you know, Hampton Creek has made this claim that they will have a product that will be sold at some point in 2018. Uh, They have been very tight-lipped on what it will be and how much of it will be sold, um, but other companies are talking about, uh, other meat companies rather mm-hmm. are talking about 2021 as their date for commercialization, but some of the milk or egg companies probably are going to be commercialized within a year or two with their products. Uh, in short, doing this process of growing the gelatin or the milk or the egg whites, Um, that's simpler to do than growing meat. And so those companies will be the first to commercialize. I think Modern Meadow, which is a leather company, they're making biofabricated leather, will also commercialize before the meat companies do. Uh, They have gotten a lot of investment. Modern Meadow has gotten about $50 million in investment so far. And they're doing really amazing things, producing all types of uh, leather that are not just... Mimicries of whether they're superior in so many different ways to whether that you would get off the back of a cow. uh Now, Modern Meadow is one that I think a
1: book kicks off with Modern Meadow, which is um, interesting because it was one of the first companies I heard that were going to do meat, but I think they've kind of shifted their focus, at least in the short term, to leather. Yes. Um,
0: yeah. So, Modern Meadow was started by a guy named Andrus Forgox. And Andrus had a history of uh, being, he had started a company with his father called. Um, mm-hmm. Organovo, which basically was producing real human tissues for experimentation purposes, and he thought, well, maybe if we could do that, we could also grow animal tissues. And so originally, Modern Meadow was focused on producing the inside and the outside of the cow—the beef and the yeah. weather. And back in 2014, he was kind enough to give me a sample of his queen beef. Uh, remember, I mean, I hadn't eaten meat in decades. I mean, since 1993, so at that point, it would have been 21 years. And he surprised me by offering me some of this. (laughs) I remember thinking, you know, I don't have any ethical concerns about this, but it was pretty jarring, you know, somebody who hadn't eaten meat in so long. But I one, I wanted to be a good guest, but two, I also you know, recognize the historic nature of this to Mm. be one of the first clean meat consumers on earth. I mean, at that point, more humans had gone into space than had ever eaten meat grown outside of an animal. (laughs) And so he was kind enough to offer me a sample of what he was calling steak chips. Think of it kind of like a potato chip, but made out of beef. Mm. And um, I ate it, and it was good. And I had a lot of questions racing through my mind, like, you know, what did this mean? I wasn't a vegetarian anymore, <laughs> like all these things. But in reality, it doesn't really matter what I call myself. And mm-hmm. uh, Andrus decided eventually to put his steak chips on ice and now is focused just on leather. And he thinks that the industry for clean animal products will be better off if we lead with leather because people are much more likely to try novel um, clothing rather than novel foods. Mm. So if you think about like carbon fiber, Gore-Tex or other things that have entered the market, um, very few people have any concerns about it. So he thought if you can get people accustomed to the idea of wearing, let's say leather that was grown outside of a cow, uh, maybe later you can get more, uh, comfortable with the idea of eating beef that was grown without a cow also.
1: That's interesting. Um, and you mentioned the meat industry is also uh, looking into this. They've already invested in uh, Memphis meats, Cargill specifically. Right? Why are they not, or oh, maybe they are, maybe you do know the answer to this. Um, why, I guess my question is, why aren't they doing their own R&D?
0: They should be. Um, I, I think it's a bit of a mystery, but I think the cargo announcement really woke a lot of folks in the meat industry up. Both the Tyson investment in Beyond Meat, which is, of course, plant-based meat, but Mm -hmm. still it's in this alternative meat category, and the cargo investment in Memphis Meats doing Queen Meat, I think has been a wake-up call for a lot of these companies. And I've talked to many of them who say that they are very interested in doing this. And so right now, you already have, for example, let's just say Gardein, which is now owned by Pinnacle Foods, which is also the producer of Hungry Man and and Vandekamp's Fish and so on. Um, you had uh, Kellogg uh, owning Morningstar. you've got um, a whole host of these companies like the, the milk com- the plant-based milk companies which have been bought by dairy companies and so on. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the meat industry either investing in these queen meat companies or buying them altogether. But I think that some of them will do their own. I also think that you're likely to see licensing where meat companies, purchase the IP from these companies to build their own facilities to produce clean meat using the technologies that these companies have pioneered. And that could be done uh, probably, I think, most likely first in China uh, and maybe in Latin America, places like Brazil. But so far, that hasn't happened. But I would be surprised if it doesn't happen in the near future. Mm-hmm. So I mean, these companies that we see today, even Memphis Meats,
1: at the moment, and tell me if you disagree, They're sort of, you can call them food companies. They're glorified R and D labs at the moment. (laughs) I'd call them food technology companies. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right. So, you know, they could end up never
0: bringing a product to the market under their own brand. It's quite possible, right? Totally possible. In fact, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what Mosa meat Mark post company wants Mm -hmm. to do. Mosa meats intent is to license its its technologies to the big meat players rather than being like a branded product called Mm -hmm. Mosa meat that you look for in the supermarket. Yeah.
1: yeah so that's this could go in so many different directions but as, at the end of it as long as we do have a product in the market
0: it doesn't matter if I think it doesn't matter if Tyson or Cargill or it, it would probably be, be better for them probably. to be the ones because they have such an advantage in terms of capitalization distribution and mm-hmm. so on you know look at it like this so think about um, the digital film industry mm. for a long time you had Kodak and Canon competing against each other in the gelatin film and camera space Digital film comes along, and Canon invests heavily, and Kodak didn't. You know the story. Kodak went bankrupt, and Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on Earth. And that has played out so many times uh, where... A big company has totally changed its business model to innovate and be adaptive to changing times and to use superior technologies. I'll give you one other example. So in the 19th century, you had this huge natural ice industry where Mm. you were carving out big chunks of ice from northern lakes and shipping it all over the world. Well, enter the advent of industrial refrigeration, and all of a sudden, you had a much cheaper way to produce ice simply by cooling the ice down right in front of you. And the natural ice industry was livid over this, and they warned consumers not to buy into the so-called artificial ice, ice. (laughs) that it could be the artificial ice could be dangerous to you, didn't know what was in it. And the irony at the time was that the so-called artificial ice was actually much safer because they were cooling down ice or excuse me, water that had been filtered or boiled, whereas the natural ice makers were just taking water from lakes that had been mm-hmm. polluted from industrial revolution, and they're using horses to carve it out who are going to the bathroom right in the lake where they're taking this ice from. And today you fast forward a century and all of us now have artificial ice makers in our homes. We call them freezers, and we don't think there's anything unnatural about it at all. In fact, most of us wouldn't even dream of living in a home without one. Mm. Right. That, so I that the ice story is one of my
1: favorite ones from the book, in fact, because I, I didn't know enough about the <laughs> natural ice industry. You know, I'll tell you. No, and what, I actually did some more research oh, looking cool. into it because uh, I, was, how, how, cause I was
0: surprised that I didn't know yeah. about this. I'll tell you, if you want to listen to a fascinating podcast about mm. the history of the natural ice industry, uh, check out... Uh, stuff you missed in history class they've got a really good one so i, I learned more <laughs> about the natural ice industry than is actually in the book uh, for this more about the whaling industry and the natural ice industry than i ever wanted to know yeah uh, but it is a fascinating story now th- that and the whaling and the whale oil one so i i'm gonna
1: play devil's advocate for a second though right play. so all the all the stories in the um, uh, sort of um Prior technologies that were disrupted by newer innovations that people were initially resistant to, uh, that you include in your book, whether it's whale oil or uh, transportation or um, ice, or maybe ice is a slight exception, actually, uh, or because it's still something you consume. Oh, uh, yeah. So my question is really, food is not oil. Food yeah, is not transportation, right. and food is not uh, gelatin film that uh, Kodak used to use. Right. There's going to be bigger barriers than just, um, totally you know. so, and that's, yeah. so this it's a two part question, right? One is food is part of culture. It's part of tradition and yeah, traditions change. And I guess I'm sort of answering the question, but I'll, I'm going to go on a little bit more before I get your take on this. Um, there was a time where we consumed eel pie in this country and um, roast uh, beaver tail as well, and so food traditions
0: also change over time. I was just thinking, we need a Queen Beaver Tail company. Be the, <laughs> some, be... some some entrepreneur is going to come along, and, and
1: you the... know, there was a time, and you include this in your book as well. People in in America didn't uh, were not open to the idea of consuming sushi, and now you look at food trends now. Sushi poke is the is the <laughs> biggest thing, at least in in urban areas. So food trends can also change, but food uh, is still something sort of different. So that I see is the one huge barrier that, that we're going to have to overcome is changing that cultural mindset and there's ways to do it. And a lot of advertising money will do it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to, before I have you interrupt, the, the one one last point I want to add on is one is it's food, which makes it difficult. And the second is, can you really achieve this without subsidizing the food? Because even if you look at the kerosene and whale oil example, what I did find out is kerosene was subsidized by the government, um, which helped drive down the cost, which made whale oil very expensive in comparison and eventually drove that industry out of business. Go for it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the the, the uh, petroleum industry has remained subsidized ever since. Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. Um but in short, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think it is a, an uphill battle in some respects when you're dealing with food. At the same time, I wouldn't underestimate the power of making these foods taste the same and be cost competitive. Because I think when you get there, The other advantages are so overwhelming. Just take food safety as one example. You know, right now we are warned to treat raw meat in our kitchens almost like it's like toxic waste Mm. because it's riddled with feces. E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, these are all intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of our meat, literally. And uh, with queen meat, They're not growing intestines. They're just growing the meat. And so it's so much safer, which is one reason why food safety groups that I quote in the book are very enthusiastic about clean meat. You're more likely to infect the meat with your own hands than you are to infect yourself from the meat. So there's so many benefits and advantages I think are going to make it overwhelming, but there's nothing that is a fait accompli about any of this. This is still a very nascent field. A lot of this is speculative And while I am certainly hopeful and optimistic about the, uh, the industry, it still remains to be seen.
1: Yeah. A great first step, um, I think was in calling it clean meat. Um, and I, I kind of understood why I had a sense of it because, you know, it's clean, it says clean and implies that it's better or safer, but I don't think I totally bought it till I read something (laughs) that you had in your book, um, about how when someone says or said cellular meat or in vitro meat, the first reaction was usually a frown and negative or yeah. sort of a yuck factor That's right. that most people had. Versus when you say clean meat, the first question is, what does that mean? And <laughs> sh- you, can, you kind of can steer the conversation into all the benefits. Of That's it. right. So you lead with the benefits, which to me was, I think, the smartest thing I understood about the branding or the use of the word clean meat because it just shifts it to a positive, which is always better than a negative.
0: Yeah, well, you have the Good Food Institute for Thank for That. So mm-hmm. they popularized the term uh, clean meat. And uh, they didn't invent it. Uh, there have been people who had proposed it before, but they actually did the scientific research to find out what people would be attracted to. And Bruce Friedrich, the executive director of the Good Food Institute, makes the following point, which is that when you use a term like in vitro meat or cultured meat, people either have a negative reaction or they don't know what it is. And you have to explain, oh, well, what is culturing? What is in vitro? Um, I mean, if you say in vitro meat, it sounds almost like you're eating a baby. Like, who knows what, that's what people think when they think in vitro. And with clean meat, when somebody says, oh, why is it clean? Then you can explain that, well, one, it's like clean energy and that it's cleaner for the planet. And also it is just literally cleaner for the reasons that we just talked about.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's a very... Smart choice, um, given all the other choices, which were terrible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of ones out there, but uh, you know there are some people who uh, who are not fans of the term queen meat, and I mm. always say to them, "Come up with something better." Like, and they're within <laughs> the
1: industry, you mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're in the, more in the academic side than in the commercialization side. Pretty much every one of the c- companies trying to commercialize it is using that uh, that nomenclature, but with uh, and some of the academics uh, prefer others and there's not a single survey or focus group that shows that anything really does better than clean meat. So yeah. if somebody comes up with something better, I'm sure everybody would switch to it. But for right now, that seems to be the best option. Right. And, you know, I want to make sure we add this point.
1: And I guess if someone is still listening at this point in the conversation, you that means you're probably a proponent of this or interested in it, even if you wouldn't consume it yourself. I think it's important to make the point though, that I'm sure some people listening and uh, a lot of people who I talk to about food in the future of food tend to lead with their personal opinion on this matter, which sometimes is, "I wouldn't eat that." Why can't people just eat whole food? So vegetables. What's wrong with what's wrong with plants? And and I know we kind of touched on this earlier, but I think I think it's important to sort of end this discussion on clean meat with a clear statement focusing on who this is for and how this is not about you and I. You and I may never (laughs) eat this. Maybe I will. I don't know. But um, it's about what's, you know, let's get ourselves out of this U.S. bubble where we feel everyone is eating healthier, natural foods and clean foods and and people are shifting to plant-based diets. And, you know, we talk about it all the time and that's happening but let's look at what's happening in China. Let's look at what's happening in India. Let's look at where the most population growth is coming from. It's from those places, and uh, those parts of the world. And we're going to be ten billion people in 2050. When are they going to start eating vegan? I don't think so anytime soon. So, yeah, I, I totally who, agree. Who is this you? for? Why is it needed from a from a planetary survival of humanity uh-huh. um, and and a future of our species versus? what you and I may be able to consume or be able to afford.
0: Yeah, let's just put this in perspective. So right now, our planet is in the midst of its sixth mass extinction. And unlike the last big extinction event, which took out the dinosaurs... The culprit this time isn't an asteroid from the heavens. It's us. It's Homo sapiens. And a large part of those species declines can be traced to our desire to eat so much meat. In fact, the World Wildlife Fund just put out a report showing that the majority of global biodiversity loss can be traced to our desire to eat a meat-heavy diet. Now, I think you're absolutely right that China, India, Brazil, uh, those are places where human population is really on the rise and per capita meat consumption is on the rise. I also think that we shouldn't underestimate our own culpability here in the United States because we eat more meat on a per capita basis than virtually any other nation on earth as 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 high as demand for meat in China is it's only half on a per person basis of what it is here in the US and so while people like you and I are happy to go to Whole Foods and to other uh, places that are selling uh foods like you know quinoa and quinoa tempeh, tempeh like we were talking about <laughs> Um, that's not what most Americans are doing. Mm -hmm. It's certainly, um, you know, look at what most people are eating and we realize that 99% of animal products are coming from factory farms. And it's a huge number of animals, billions and billions and billions of them. So if we want a solution that is going to address the animals who are suffering on factory farms here in the U.S., and that can feed a growing, hungry population as we increase the human race by billions more by 2050, as you say, we have to do something like this. And if we expect that people are going to eat lentils and cauliflower, that's great. I love those foods. I eat them myself. But I think a lot of people want meat. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to provide it for them in a way that doesn't destroy the planet and ourselves in the process, we're going to have to get a lot more efficient, and clean meat is one possible solution to that problem. I think you're right. And
1: I think you said that really well. So um, as we sort of wind down and kind of wrap up this conversation, I want to kind of go back to where we started off um, about the work that you've been doing for the last uh, 20 years, right from your early beginnings as an animal activist in high school to uh, now where you are with your first published book, uh, talking about clean meat. When are you leaving the
0: HSUS to start your <laughs> own clean meat company is my question. <laughs> uh, um, I think that there is a lot of promise to start these companies right now. There's more money than there are companies. So I think anybody who has a, a reasonable, uh, business plan, I think could get funded at least two, uh, two, $3 million to start their company up right now, just because the demand for these type of companies is greater than the number of the companies. Um, I've spent my life advocating for animals, and I will continue doing that as long as I think that what I'm doing is the most effective way that I can help them. And I think that we all should be open to new chapters in our lives if we decide those are the right things to do. You know, right now I have a a platform to be able to promote this field, and I hope that this book will encourage more investment in the field and uh, encourage more people to start their own companies. Um, And whether or not I need to be the one to do that, I don't know about that but uh, I have an open mind, you know, I used to, uh, I used to run an organization called compassion over killing that I founded and, and ran, um, until 2005 and I thought I'd be there forever and I've never intended to leave HSUS either. Uh, but you never know what the cards will hold for you in your career. I'm sure when you were at Yahoo, you probably thought you were going to be there forever and now you're running one green planet. So, uh, you never know, but right now my plan is to keep touting the benefits of this industry and hope it attracts a lot more people, um, um, hopefully he'll be far more effective than I would be at doing these type of projects.
1: Yeah. So um, how do you plan to stay involved in the short term? Your books um, your books out there, obviously you're going to be promoting that. Um, and seems like as part of the research of the book, you seem to be in, very involved with a lot of the companies. Um, yeah. I don't know if, how much of that was through your role in HSUS versus just the fact that you were writing a book like this. How do you plan to continue staying involved at least in the next year okay. Um, as your book is sort of now the the, the only known
0: record or story of <laughs> That's what, right. this, what uh, this industry I'm, is. I'm proud to say that I have written the book on queen meat since I've written literally the only book on queen meat. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I do intend to continue um, trying to publicize the benefits that this new field of cellular agriculture can bring, both through the book and through my work at HSUS and in any other ways that I can. Right. And How do you sort of see all of this um,
1: evolving over time? I mean, if you, you know, you've been deep in research, obviously, to produce a book like this, you've also, you know, have the benefit of working for um, the end of factory farming for the last 20 years. This seems to be pretty much your life's mission now, I think that goes without saying. Sure. Given we are in a place where we are now, how do you see this all playing out and what at what time frames? I mean, now when you look, say, at 2050,
0: um, what do you see? What is that utopia for you? (laughs) Well, Tom Hayes, the CEO of Tyson Foods, recently said when I asked him about this at a Wall Street Journal forum that he thought that. Plant-based meats and queen meats within a couple decades would probably be at about twenty percent of the total meat market. Uh, I think it'll be higher than that, but keep in mind, right now it's less than one percent. So even if if Tom Hayes, the CEO of the biggest meat producer in the country, says twenty percent from less than one to twenty percent, that's tens of billions of fewer animals who you know are spared from the horrors of factory farming, and it's a great relief to the planet. And I think that if you get to that level, it's hard to see uh, people continuing to eat the way that we have been in the past. Once there are these alternatives that are readily available, that are much more efficient, more humane, more sustainable, and safer— I think that you're going to see a transformation that's going to occur in the same way that we have in so many other things. It's not that, you know, we still have some horse-drawn carriages around, either for the Amish or for tourists or whatever. Uh, We still, you know, have uh, some nations in the world are still whaling. Um, Mm. But... So I don't know whether you're gonna have like 100% displacement um, on, on this. That, that seems unlikely to me. Um, but I do think that these technologies, both plant-based and clean, are going to dramatically reduce the number of animals who we are raising and slaughtering for food. And that is going to change the way that we view these animals. Because it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. And when we are less reliant on animals for food, we are going to start viewing animals like chickens and pigs and cows in a very different way than we view them right now. Well, I think you're right. And um, I really, you know, I think if we
1: are, um, and as long as we encourage more and more people to get involved in this space right now, and if we are able to also get the meat industry or the dairy industry to start looking at this as the only way they can, be sustainable in the wrong... And I don't mean sustainable from an environmental standpoint, but financially. Yes. That if they are concerned about long-term financial growth and stability and shareholder value, these are, these are are this is the kind of technology they need to be backing.
0: Yes. They, and they
1: whether need, it's clean meat or plant-based meat for that matter or, or plant-based milk or a cultured milk. Yeah. They should be... Canon, not Kodak. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, that's a great way to end. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna end there, but I'm, um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'm sure I'm gonna have you back at some point to, to talk about much more than just this, but, um, uh, it was fascinating. I highly encourage listener to go check out clean meat available at
0: cleanmeat.com
1: and, uh, and Do what you can to spread the word and get people on board um, to support this uh, very important work that's being done right now that has the potential to transform our food system and by doing so, hopefully um, saving our planet from uh, the kind of disastrous future we have (laughs) ahead. From us. From us. Um, Thank you, Paul. It's a real pleasure to be with you.